Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have James Walker, who's the Managing Director of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs at Credit Suisse. James started his career at the Australian Stock Exchange as a market surveillance analyst. In 2003, he joined Deutsche Bank in equities compliance. James then moved to City, where he worked for 13 years in a variety of different roles, including Head of Compliance for Australia and New Zealand. In 2017, James joined Credit Suisse as the Head of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs for Australia. James is now based in Hong Kong in his current role at Credit Suisse. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. I'd like to start off with your early life. Can you give us a little bit more detail about where you grew up? Sure. Um, so I grew up in the um, in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, uh, a little place called George's Hall that most people haven't heard of. Um, and uh, yeah, basically it's a the classic suburbia, kind of halfway between Bankstown and Liverpool. Okay, and. In terms of um, your career, I mean, obviously you've had a long time within compliance. What made you move into compliance and and also what made you develop your career within the banking financial services sector? Sure. All right. So I think like many people, um, compliance is not the kind of profession that uh, that people know about when they're growing up. Um, And certainly for me, I didn't. And, you know, I suppose, you know, back then, in the 90s, compliance was very much just, uh, you know, starting to uh, be a thing at all. Um, and I think um, what I did have an interest in is in financial markets. Um, and so, you know, the thesis that I wrote at university was comparing the stock exchanges of Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And I certainly had an interest in, you know, in the way things work. But I also, I think there was certainly a, um, uh, the the sense of right and wrong was very important to me, um, and that you know the knowledge that things were happening in in the right way, not just the it wasn't just a like a an academic interest in terms of you know efficient markets. It was much more than that. Um, and so ultimately, um, you know, when I got an introduction to work at the stock exchange, um, and I loved it. It was a great team, and it was a really great environment to learn in the market surveillance space. So there were certainly technical skills there, but there was also a culture of discussing that what you were working on. Um, and so there's always been that element of combining the, the technical skills with the communication skills. And I think from there, um, you know, it was an easy step into uh, compl- the compliance world after that. Okay. And has there been, when you look over your career, has there been a particular person or people that have been a key mentor to you? And, and how do you feel that they developed your career and, and leadership style? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think like, like many people, I've been lucky that I've had um, a few mentors over the, over the years. And I think importantly, they've, they've each had very different personalities. Um, and I think that, you know, different skills as well in terms of the, you know, the, the way that they've been able to uh, guide or develop me in, in different ways. So I think one example would be the, the, the legendary old head of the ASX market surveillance Jim Berry, um, you know, real industry legend, well-known guy, um, 
but importantly, what I was saying before about the combining the technical skills and communication skills, a lot of that came from him in that we, there would be a morning meeting amongst the team and anything that you know interesting that the team wanted to talk about, there was a forum where you could present to the group and you know you needed to be able to back up your views with some with some evidence and you need to be able to justify it with some arguments as to you know why the team should pursue it as an investigation or or something like that and i think but it was that banter around the table that really kind of helped me sharpen my skills um you know early in my career um i think probably you know that's the kind of thing that you know those of you lucky enough uh like i was um you know, to have a family that discusses things around the dinner table, it's a very similar environment. Um, and I think that really kind of, you know, developed at the Stock Exchange. Um, I think then later in uh, in my career, I've been lucky to work with my, my current manager uh, a couple of times um, over um, over my career. And and I think he's been very instrumental in um, in always being available as that sounding board. Um, and I think the the other thing that has been um, you know very positive about our relationship is that um, compliance we often cop a bit of flack for you know having to say no to the business on something important. Um, I think one of the things that he's taught me is that publicly, absolutely, you know, kind of he backs up the team and makes sure that compliance um, is protected and um, you know we, we can preserve our independence. Um, but privately, behind closed doors, it will certainly give me direct feedback on what we could have done better as a team. And I think that's that, um, you know, um, that's a really important skill to develop uh, as a senior manager is to, you know, how to help your uh, middle managers to, you know, to I suppose not just manage their team but also manage their relationships with the with the various businesses. It's interesting that you mentioned the ASX because certainly what I've seen over my career in recruitment is there's been some really strong people that came out of the ASX over a period of time and have really gone to very senior levels of leadership within compliance over the years. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, definitely, Mark. I think that's a very accurate comment. And I think it's it's certainly the environment that I was in in the surveillance team. Um, you know, th- this was back in the day before the, um, you know, the, the, the surveillance functions moved into ASIC um, and so I think there were people who um, you know got some great experience and took that from the ASX you know into the, the regulator um, and that's been great for a number of people um, and I think it's served ASIC very well to have those you know people with the deep experience. Likewise in the compliance space there are people who also came from the ASX investigations and enforcement team um, in addition to the surveillance team that I was in. Likewise, even, you know, I know of others who have worked in the, you know, the listings or the companies department and, you know, that was kind of like the start of their career that then launched them into um, into other things as well. When you look at your career, you, you've held a range of senior leadership positions. Has there been a significant turning point that resulted in where you are today? Sure. So I think as, as per your introduction in terms of the, the career history, Probably two things, um, you know, stand out. I worked on a major, um, you know, basically the what really has been the largest insider trading case in in Australia, which was the 
ASIC versus CGMA uh, case. That was um, roughly between 2005 and 2007. And although that was a very stressful period and, you know, ridiculously long hours and all that kind of thing for all concerned, um, it taught me a number of things. It taught me, I suppose, the gravity of the of what we're working on. We're talking about people's lives, their livelihood, their ability to work in the industry again. Um, and, you know, frankly, we're talking, we're talking about a situation where we had reviewed all of the documents internally and we genuinely felt the regulator had got it wrong and just did not have the, um, you know, the correct evidence to support their views. So major contentious case. Um, it also taught me, I think, how to prioritise because you've got to keep the, you know, the wheels moving on everything else the team's working on. Um, in addition to having to throw massive hours at one big thing, and so I think that that was really instrumental in terms of you know being able to uh, you know manage the team in an effective way. Um, the second thing I think is that um, I got the opportunity to move up to Singapore uh, and you know lived and worked there for more than two years, um, and you know that was. That was great for, you know, broadening my horizons beyond Australia and, um, you know, not just Singapore, but as a critical, uh, you know, hub for Southeast Asia, India, you know, other parts of the world and, you know, building up the network of contacts. That was a really great experience. Um, so obviously coming back to Australia, which was largely for family reasons, um, you know, was great too because it did, you know, with that international Experience. I was then able to, you know, apply some of those um, some of those lessons back into Australia, and here I am back up in uh, in Asia again. And so I think I've been uh, I've been very lucky that I've been able to work in um, you know in three major locations in Asia. And what's been your favourite location? Oh, <laughs> tough <laughs> question. Um, look, Australia will always be home. Yeah. Um, but um, but look, I, I love the um, you know the diversity that. Um, you know that you get in both Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, very different places, um, and you know you certainly just you know obviously the the business culture is great, um, but obviously the, the the social and cultural aspects, um, you know it's you know you're learning something new every day. Yeah, they're both great countries. When you t- look at um, the the situation that you just talked about in terms of the case that you worked on, was that one of the most challenging components of your career? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, look, I think the, um, I think one thing that one thing that I use in compliance training is, um, you know, these these events are, you know, they they might be great in 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 one respect in the sense that you know the it's an intensive period of learning and and development and you know things like that, but they are really really taxing and you know kind of physically and you know it's very mentally challenging. Um, you know, it's it's very emotional. You know, when when people are, you know, when their careers are on the line, um, and I think that what I try to you know explain to people in training is prevention is so valuable because uh, you know, do you really want three years of your life wasted working on a major litigation? Um, you know, we want to keep things you know so far away from you know from you know the proverbial line that you know that you never even get caught up in that kind of a 
um, you know, contentious matter. It's 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 just such a a drain on everybody's um, you know everybody's lives that it's really just not worth it. When you look at leadership, you, you've managed significant sized teams throughout your career. What do you see as the key attributes of an effective leader? Good question. Um, look, I think um, the best thing to remember is that it's not it's not personality driven. Um, there's no such thing as a uh, only alpha people can be can be leaders. That 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 couldn't be further from the truth. I've seen excellent leaders that have come from you know you know very different styles and very different um, you know approaches. Um, I definitely start with. Um, you know, effective leaders have to be great listeners. They have to uh, be able to, you know, take on information um, and, you know, views from all sorts of people um, and, you know, be, be considerate in the way that you weigh up, you know, everybody's, you know, different perspectives. And listening isn't always the game as well because not everybody says things out loud. Um, a lot of people are nervous about telling a manager or a leader, uh, you know, what they really think about issues. And so sometimes, um, you know, it really is a question of, uh, you know, developing, you know, your ability to read the situation and read the dynamics within teams or between your compliance team and, and another, you know, function in the bank. Um, it could even be that, you know, you, you need to kind of get out in front of, a, of an issue and anticipate that, you know, that this particular style, of, you know, is not going to work with that business leader. And, you know, look, I think ultimately I think one of the things that I've mentioned earlier about one of my mentors has been the, you know, you, you need your leader um, to, to demonstrate that they are looking out for, your, for you, looking out for your best interests. And um, by the same token, it's not all, you know, it's not all good news and, uh, you know, kind of telling people happy stories to keep them, you know, keep them focused. You've definitely got to be able to have the hard conversation behind closed doors um, and give constructive feedback about, you know, hey, I'm here to help you. I'm here to develop you. Um, in order to do that, this is the, you know, the thing that we need to fix together. And so I think, um, you know, certainly, you know, Leadership is not, um, excuse me. <coughs> leadership is not about, uh, you know, leading from the front. And I've made my mind up, and uh, the team will follow. Um, I, I, I don't think that works. I think it's got to be something that is a listening-based, um, you know, style of leadership. I would absolutely agree with you on your point about a leader having their teams back. I think is what what you're sort of saying there, and also second to that. Uh, really around the having constructive real-time feedback and working through issues together in the right sort of setting and forum. What about when you look at your own teams? What what do you look for when you hire people within your team? Again, I'd probably go back to some of the, the some of the points that you know the way that I was kind of coached early in my career. Um, in terms of, I try to ask people questions around. Okay, we can establish a base of of technical skill in in terms of whatever area it may be. But then, I try to ask open ended questions 
for people to, um, you know, have a, have a an opportunity to communicate, you know, their approach, um, and you know, I suppose give them a little bit more of a um, a chance to describe, um, you know, how they have handled you know specific examples in the past, how they would approach things in future, and. Again, I'm not trying to trap anybody at all. It's um, it's not meant to be a curly question. It's just to get a sense for the person's communication skills um, and how they explain their uh, their approach to whatever field you're talking about. Um, because for me, you know, the the it's 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 always you know perhaps I'm I'm a bit biased about this because I always see compliance as a bit of a jack of all trades type function where. You know, we definitely need some people who are more on the technical skills side of things, whether that be, um, you know, regulatory or whether that be, you know, business specific or product knowledge uh, or other skills. Um, but I really feel that, you know, the what binds the team together is the communication and the ability to, uh, to benefit from each other's, uh, you know, areas of specialisation. What sort of one piece of advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself if you were starting over your career again? Oh, good question again, Mark. Um, <laughs> I think the, um, I think for me the, the the willingness to throw yourself in, um, and and take a risk when it comes to doing a, you know, compliance coverage uh, of a different business you haven't covered before. And do that as often as you can. Um, I think the the benefit of growing up in a market like Australia is that you never really have the resources to have five people doing everything uh, like you may have in New York or London or elsewhere. Um, you you have to develop your your ability to do different things. Not everybody gets that opportunity to um, you know to try different things, and you know it has to be said. You know, some personality types are nervous about trying something new, trying something different they haven't uh, they haven't done before. So I'd say that um, you know the sooner you back yourself to um, you know to try that, um, you know the the better your your career will progress. I, I was lucky that I had a couple of things fall into my lap, but um, it's you know you shouldn't be relying on luck in terms of somebody else. Uh, you know, helping you with you know expanding your scope into a different product area, um, it it should be part of your own plan for yourself. Absolutely. When you look across the three lines of defence, how does the second line strike the right balance from an independence point of view? In your view, hmm. yeah, it's always look. It's always a tough question because um, it's some of the training that I've given in the past is that. You don't want to be an always yes person in the same way that you don't want to be an always no person. That you want to have the the balance in the middle of the you know the businesses um, and other functions, knowing that that you're thinking about things carefully in terms of trying to find solutions, but you definitely have the um, you know the the resolve to say no when you need to say no. And so I think the there's, it's almost like a decision tree type um, type process 
where you try and give your business partners some visibility that this is the process that you're going through in order to consider you know, what they're looking for. So that's one aspect, which is more about you know, transparency to your business partners. I'd say the other aspect is that um, there are going to be those key moments in your career where someone is going to try and lean on you or bring political pressure to bear or something of that sort in order to get something approved by compliance. It's going to happen. So it's, it's the more that you can demonstrate a track record of, of course I consider, you know, potential solutions, you know, here's all of the, you know, here are all the times where I've tried to, you know, find a way uh, and find a smarter way for the for the firm to do something, and these are the you know these are the examples of where that was the case, and we we were able to approve. However, in this case, I cannot approve because of these reasons. And so I think no one can really ever complain about uh, about compliance in in you know in that context. And the best thing is you can demonstrate that you know that you are. Um, an independent function and, you know, you're not kind of uh, not being swayed by, um, you know, pressure from, you know, from the line one management. For When you're in an advisory role within compliance, I assume that there's a quite a big component there is in the delivery of how you try to influence the business as to why something needs to happen rather than a situation where you say, no, we can't do that um, scenario. and and become a cannot person. Is that fair in terms of the, the Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a good point you raised that you know the you know it's it's not just about um you know kind of being polite in in the way that things are said or you know but I I think there's there's a context um that that people need to you know you need to make sure that you remind people of the context of uh you know of of where that particular issue or, you know, business structure, you know, where are the key risk points? And using risk language around, okay, well, if if we're talking about, you know, the, the, you know, the minimal risk situation, uh, you know, here at this end of the scale, um, but we appreciate that's not, you know, kind of doesn't, you know, meet all the business objectives. However, at the other end of the spectrum, there's a there's maximum risk from a compliance regulatory or conduct perspective, um, so you know we we need to bring it back into the middle where you, you're striking that balance of um, you know meeting business objectives and obviously competitive pressures and all those types of things, but you've still got proper um, you know you've got your business designing the right controls to you know to manage and prevent those types of risks. Yep. When it comes back to teams again, I've always believed that a successful team is made up of people from a diverse background. What's your view on the importance of diversity in building a team? Definitely, Mark. You're absolutely spot on with that. Um, Look, I think diversity as broadly defined um, as possible um, is critical to a a functioning team. Um, It starts with the way that you hire um, and you know, avoiding the, um, you know, there are obviously various kind of terms for this in terms of unconscious bias, um, you know, but even just the, um, you know, resisting the temptation to 
to hire somebody who sounds like you, who looks like you, who's got a similar background to you, you know, kind of career-wise. Um, you know, your your own successor as you build your succession plan uh, or the, you know, the graduate level, you know, recruitment type stuff. You've, you've got to be thinking about, okay, what does the team currently not have? And, you know, recruit on that basis. So, for instance, had a fantastic example of it years ago where I'm not claiming any credit for being smart at all. It was just a, it was a lucky, um, you know, introduction that we had a surveillance role come up within the team uh, and um, got an introduction and somebody applied who was from a, a technology background with zero compliance or regulatory experience. And it was exactly what the team needed because we already had lots of people who had legal or regulatory or business compliance type background, um, but we did not have anybody who would just look at things critically from a, from a technology perspective. And it was, it was an absolute godsend for the team. Um, obviously, um, diversity um, you know, captures uh, gender diversity uh, as well, um, and definitely uh, you know, cultural backgrounds is very critical to, you know, to have um, around the table. Um, you know, because it's the right thing to do, first and foremost. Um, but secondly, the team will benefit as well because you've, you've got different ways of thinking and different ways of problem solving around the table rather than a whole bunch of people who think and speak the same way. What about uh, in your career, when you look at conduct risk, how have you observed the implementation of conduct risk changing throughout your career and where do you see it going? Yeah, look, really interesting. It's um, it's something that really started to develop. Um, well, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I'd say roughly kind of like six or seven years ago, um, the term really started to, um, you know, kind of, you know, starting off from the UK and kind of came out to other countries from there. And initially, I think a lot of compliance people, we saw our role as it's our job to catch the misconduct uh, with surveillance. Or testing, monitoring, you know, other types of, um, you know, kind of tools. And it's our job to make sure that disciplinary action is taken and recommended to management and we track all of the breaches. And, you know, so we all kind of started developing, you know, uh, you know management information and metrics and, you know, all these types of things. And that's great. All of those things are still very important that we do have that. But I think, you know, more recently, um, you know, the regulatory expectation um, have very much focused on, um, you know, what is the, the positive culture and the positive uh, behaviours and conduct that your firm is, is trying to, um, you know, establish as part of your firm's DNA and, you know, what are you all doing about it? You all being, you know, management in all lines of the, of the fence. What are you all doing to, you know, to do that? And so I think we're, we're increasingly needing to use our skills as uh, advisors and guides to talk to management and say, hey, uh, you know, this email shouldn't be coming from compliance. This email should be coming from the, you, the head of the business. So that, and you've got to back it up next time you have a team meeting or a business town hall. Uh, you, you've got to be able to back it up not just in the public messages, but then again, when you're dealing with this 
uh, you know, deal or risk approval situation, um, you've got to be calling out the, you know, the, the key conduct risk elements. We will help you from a compliance point of view. We'll guide, we'll, you know, we'll help you with, with how to do that. But your people need to hear from you. And so I think that that's increasingly, you know, the, the one of the things that we can, we, we can't just like, um, hand it over to the business heads and, and wash our hands and say your problem. I don't agree with that approach. I think you've really got to, um, you've got to be the trusted advisor that's helping management have the right, um, you know, the, the, the right messaging and then the, you know, the right, um, you know, kind of management supervision to back it up. When you look across the global institutions that have been going through this compliance build out since um, post financial crisis, where do you see that generally across the, the industry? Are these institutions at with conduct risk in their journey? Are they well down the track in their journey around conduct risk, or is there still a lot of sort of figuring out how to get this right? Oh, look, I think everybody, um, in terms of the international firms, particularly, um, and particularly the countries where the local regulator has been quite vocal, I do think a number, like most firms, are are well down the path. Mm. Everyone still has challenges when it comes to, you know, the things that are hard to measure. So, you know, if your traditional financial risks are at one end of the scale where it's measurable, it's, you're talking about numbers uh, rather than, um, you know, concepts, then it's very quantitative and it fits comfortably in the, you know, the risk language. It's all about the, the qualitative risks are the ones where everyone is still trying to, uh, you know, to measure. So, look, obviously, you know, Staff surveys have been have been done extensively. Um, other kind of um, you know kind of anonymous or other structured feedback loops, um, great, all good things. Um, but I think you know how to measure the you know the, the people who are um, I think resisting you know pushing back or uh, you know fighting against you know the the, the, the core values of the firm, it's often still very hard to kind of get all of those measurements from different places um, and get them into a meaningful, uh, you know, conversation. That's that's I think where everybody is still um, is still grappling with that. Um, yeah. What about uh, in terms of your managing stress and work pressures? You've worked in many different senior roles throughout your career. How do you manage work pressures and, and stress of the various roles that you've worked in? Well, look, I think you've got to take care of yourself um, physically. So whatever that means for different people, um, I think having some kind of um, exercise in your weekly routine, um, that's key. Um, I think um, your mental health uh, is... Uh, it's very much a, a team approach required for that. Um, you um, you can't focus on that by yourself. So I think the having um, having the ability to you know talk to family, friends, whoever it may be, work colleagues, a mentor, a mentee, somebody. Um, you know you've you've got to you've got to be able to get that kind of thing off your chest and. And have a meaningful conversation about the things that you're, you know, that, that you're dealing with. Um, I look, I'd, I'd say, um, 
you know, it, it probably sounds a bit cliche, but whether it's a part of your exercise thing or, you know, you've got to have some kind of other other hobbies that, um, uh, you know, that can take your mind off uh, work because work will always be there and there's always an, an email to answer. But, you know, making sure that, that you are, you know, preserving your quality time, um, you know, in terms of family, friends, hobbies, sports, other things. I, I'd say just having, you know, striking the right balance is the way that, um, you know, that, that helps. And I think ultimately, when it comes down to it, um, just being clear with each other at work what the expectations are, um, you know, and I'm not, that's not a, that's not management mumbo jumbo. That's something that you've just got to talk to, you know, colleagues generally. What are we trying to do here? Clarify the objective. Who's going to do what? Let's get on with it. And I just think that that tends to, when, every, when there's a plan, when there's a structure, um, you know, the, I think it just removes a lot of that stress and the, you know, people who aren't willing to, to, to question what are, you know, what are we doing here. It's interesting that you talk about um, exercise because I'm, I love running and it's amazing whenever I've had a tough day at work, I can go for a run and how that just totally almost reboots your whole brain and um, brings out the endorphins after sort of a 20-minute, 30-minute, 40-minute run can just make such a big difference into how your mindset is. Do, do you find that? Do you do running? and? Look, I, I wish I could run for that long. Um, <laughs> you're doing well. I think many years of playing soccer, my uh, my knee's not up to it. But right. um, but look, you've got to find something. Um, so for me, I've I've I try to um, to do the gym either at lunchtime or after work. Um, and likewise, um, you know, I try to make sure that I get out with the family on weekends as well. Yep. Um, so I think absolutely correct. It's um it's a, it's a must. You've got to. Just for making sure that your your body is up for, um, you know the the the, the various stresses you, you you need to um, take care of it. And it's also those days when you really don't feel like doing it that you actually go and do some exercise and and how much better you feel after it. So, a big Correct. big believer of that. What about what's your other passions outside work? Oh look, um, I, I do um, I do value family time on weekends, um, and you know I I love. Kind of, it's obviously just the the joys of being a parent and uh, and and seeing my kids, uh, you know, grow up before my eyes um, is, um, you know, obviously that's that's critical. I mentioned soccer. Not only did I play for many years, but then when I got too old and broken, I uh, I, I got my accreditations as a coach and and absolutely loved, uh, you know, a period of time when when I was a coach. Um, and so look, I obviously. Um, uh, the the lazier side of life is, uh, uh, like most Aussies, if whatever sport is on TV, then I'll, I'll watch it. So, <laughs> yeah. yep. James, uh, thanks so much for providing a really great insight into your career journey, your views around leadership, mentoring, and and also your thoughts around um, you know diversity within teams and and conduct risk. It's been a, an interesting conversation today. So, thank you. You're welcome, Mark, and likewise, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.